0: There are so many people who are not reporting what happens to them, because going through the experience of the legal system, the police system, whatever it is, is traumatic. And ultimately, most of the time, justice is not served. Even if you you report it, even if you go through the process of, you know, finding justice, the system may not serve you. And often it's re-traumatizing to go through that experience.
1: And I know what your concerns are, right? It's that there are aspects to interpersonal relationships where people misread each other that don't require the legal system, right? And, And that's really what we're trying to educate people about to get them to sort of use healthier kinds of dynamics earlier. So they don't get into these situations that are out of of hand or out of control where they misread each other.
2: Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guests this week are a father and daughter team, Dr. Drew Pinsky and Paulina Pinsky. This is a really fun interview, and I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about some exciting new developments with this show. And I know I've been talking about them for a while, but they are finally here. The Unspeakable now has a YouTube channel. How did we ever live without such a thing? It will be the home of a new feature called The Unspeakeasy. And thank you to the listener Twitter user who came up with that name. The Unspeakeasy is a place for informal video conversations with all kinds of people about all kinds of things. And these are people and things that are mostly separate from this show. Because I don't already have enough work to do on this show, I wanted to make more work for myself. Um, I'm in the process, as we speak, of putting the first of the videos up And by the time you hear this, there should be at least a handful on there, including conversations with comedian and podcaster Jamie Kilstein, talking about nuance, our favorite topic, and how hard it is to uphold it if you want to stay in business. Also, there's a talk with writer and podcaster Kat Rosenfield, and we discuss how hard it is to stay in business and also how annoying certain aspects of the media and publishing business have become. Um, basically, if you want to watch me talk with people about how annoying things are, the unspeakeasy on the unspeakable YouTube channel is the place for you. Uh, now you can watch, um, a lot of these conversations, a large portion of them for free on YouTube, but Patreon subscribers will be able to see them in their entirety. So go find the unspeakable channel on YouTube Or just go and sign up at patreon.com slash the unspeakable to get the whole deal. Okay, on to this week's guests who are not annoying in the least. Drew Pinsky is a board-certified physician and addiction medicine specialist who's been a prominent media personality for at least three decades now. On television, he's hosted programs like Dr. Drew on Call, and he's produced and starred in VH1's Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew and its various spin offs, including Sex Rehab with Dr. Drew and Sober House. He's done a ton of radio, but I knew Drew uh, first and know him best for Loveline, the nationally syndicated call in radio show he hosted with comedian Adam Carolla from 1996 to 2016. The Adam and Dr. Drew show still exists in podcast form here on Podcast One, and uh, I've been a guest there a few times, including very recently. Um, But Loveline was, in my mind, something incredibly special and unusual, as many people who know me have heard me go on about for decades. I have gotten to know Drew over the last few years, thanks to some shared interests when it comes to certain cultural issues. He, in fact, was a very early guest on this podcast. But even better, I've gotten to know his daughter, Paulina Pinsky, uh, in the last year, Paulina is a writer of comedy, personal essays, opinion pieces, fiction, you name it. She was a student in my private workshop last year and was a total delight. Now she and Drew have co-authored a book called It Doesn't Have to be Awkward, Dealing with Relationships, Consent, and Other Hard-to-Talk-About Stuff. Um, and they do a really interesting thing here. They they seek to bridge the generation gap between older people like baby boomer Drew, and younger people like Paulina, who is just 28. So in this very fun conversation, we talked about the major ideas in the book, for instance, boundaries, uh, evolving definitions of consent, and new ways of thinking about gender. We also revisited one of my all-time favorite moments from Loveline, a bit from the comedian David Allen Greer, who was a frequent guest on that show, mm-hmm. I wanted to get Paulina's opinion on the potential problematicness of that bit. So here is our conversation. Drew Pinsky and Paulina Pinsky. Welcome to the unspeakable podcast. Thank you for having us.
1: Both big Megan Dom fans. We
2: are. Well, likewise, I've never had a father daughter, uh, Team as guests. And it's fun because I know each of you independently. So this is, uh, this is an unprecedented and extra special interview in, in many ways. So we're here to talk about a book that you've written together, uh, called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward. And, uh, I have to say, I wasn't sure what to expect when I picked it up. And it, it's really cool the way you do it. Like you really weave, you, you sort of, it's, it's interwoven. And you're Paulina, your parts are in bold and your parts are in <laughs> not bold, Drew. Uh,
1: right, that's right. That's the way it works. <laughs> How did but, but that I get also like I, I can see on Paulina's face though that the fact that you as somebody she respects and it, I, a teacher that mm-hmm. she's, like, yeah. she's like, like she is lit up that you liked it.
0: It means a I, lot to me.
2: I really did. So but did you do all the were you, did did you all do, do all the work, Paulina, and he's getting partial credit?
0: I mean, yeah, she did a lot of work. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, uh, yeah I also uh, I want it to be known that I wrote all of my parts in Comic Sans. That was my oh. uh, choice font for uh, writing this book, and they uh, gracefully made it bold instead of Comic Sans. <laughs>
2: Really? Why? Because it wouldn't be taken seriously enough? I like that though. I think, but it's so silly that it's extra serious. You really, you you don't need, you you don't need to rely on a font for (laughs) Gravitas.
0: They didn't think so either.
2: No, no. Um, Well, okay. Well, let's just, let's just talk about it. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting concept for a lot of reasons, but in particular, I mean, Drew, you and I have talked about this. Do you think that the generation gap between, say, baby boomers and millennials is particularly wide? Is there something going on that wasn't happening, like, say, in the 50s between parents and kids?
0: Absolutely. Um, there's, it's, I'm going to butcher it, but my roommate can explain it better than I can. But there's this book that talks about the... uh The advancement of technology and the ways in which we are living on the asymptote line in terms of the way technology exponentially progresses. And so the gap between generation and generation is getting larger and larger because everything is changing every two to three years. So even someone who's a millennial who's maybe three or four years behind me, you know, I'll say MySpace and they'll say, what? (laughs) So it's, it's, there's this sort of, Discrepancy between what we are all consuming because we each have different cultural references. Um, and then, too, I think um, obviously, like, okay, boomer is like a huge, uh, you know, catchphrase in this moment.
2: It's, very, it's not very nice, but, no. but, I'm, <laughs> but I'm glad. Uh, is there an okay, is there an okay Xer or are we uh, once again just
0: forgotten? Gen Xers. I feel like Gen yeah. Xers are completely forgotten. Yeah. Like it's just okay. millennials versus boomers. Fine. That's Fine. interesting. You can That's have it. That's yeah. interesting.
1: Um, but I'm going to say that uh, the mo- millennial types need to study their history a little more. And, and same with the Gen Xers too. Because I lived through a period where something called the generation gap was a headline every day in the news. Where, and it was a generation gap built around wearing long hair and uh, something called the sexual revolution and get out of Vietnam now. Right. Uh, And the ecology movement. Those of you that think you're the first to dream up a a climate change movement. It was something (laughs) called the ecology movement. And I studied. Deep ecology.
2: ecology. It Uh, was deep ecology. Remember?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yo, i studied in college. I came home and announced after my freshman year of college, that that's it. We got about three more years and that is it. And so I've been through that process of being that uh, enlightened young person. Uh, And it's not all that different. It's just, but I think Paulina's point is right. What's it called? Moore's law. That's the thing, the accelerating rate of technological change. I think so. Uh, And and she's right that this one is built on technology. I think that's what's created the so-called yawning gap. But the idea, I always wondered What had happened? You know, there was it was such a big deal when I was a young teenager. The generation gap, the gener—you couldn't you couldn't talk to your parents because they wouldn't understand. There was no book like it. Doesn't have to be awkward. You just don't (laughs) talk to them because they come. It literally was madmen versus hippies. I mean, that's sort of what it was back. Right. Uh, By Mad Men, I mean the style and thinking of the TV show Mad Men, which exactly recreates what was going on in our parents' sort of experience. And so it it was a gap that at the time, there was a sense that it could not be breached. Now, we're that generation that said that. And we feel like, no, 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 you should be able to talk to us. <laughs> and I don't know how you guys feel. we like, no, 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 we want to be, we don't want to be them. We don't, we don't want to be those guys. But uh, it makes it difficult because the world is so different for us or has been so difficult for us.
2: Okay. But there's also this thing going on where the parents and the kids are supposedly friends. Uh, I don't understand and- that. Okay, mm-hmm. so you guys are not friends at all, because I, <laughs> I have to say.
1: Well, no, we're not friends at all. At all. You only,
2: oh, you only wrote
0: a book guy. together.
2: Well, because it is, I mean, it's remarkable, uh, cause, okay, so I'm kind of, betw- I'm closer to Drew's age. I mean, I'm definitely, a, a Gen Xer, but we didn't really have the madman dynamic going on so much because it wasn't the hippie thing, but like we never wanted to be near our parents. You know, we were, we graduated from high school. We were out the door, whether it was going to college or just moving out and never looked back. And I'm always amazed when I see my friends who have teenage kids, college age kids, kids in their young twenties, like the kids. They, they almost want to be living at home. Now, there are economic reasons for that, but I think even beyond that, like, I can't, I'm amazed the amount of texting that goes on all day between parents and, and their older, their sort of young adult kids and, um, just their, the way that they want to be friends. And I'm, I'm curious, do you think that that is sort of a ruse? Paulina like when they say my kids my when parents say my kids are my
0: best friends are they kidding themselves I it's both like a dynamic that I envy in that you know I'm like man it would be nice to like have a ongoing conversation with my parents but then also at the same time like I think there needs to be boundaries and I think parental boundaries kind of I, I guess they change as you age. And what I find really problematic is when, you know, kids who are under the age of 18 are saying mom's best friend, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're 24, it's more acceptable, but it's still, it still makes me ask like, do you go outside? Do you have friends? Do you do things? I don't know. I mean, I, I have a, a, both a working relationship and an interpersonal relationship with both of my parents. And I don't think I could add just uh,
1: a friendship, friendship, but, but, but we're still,
0: we are friends. We're friendly.
1: We're friendly, right? Yes. Friendly. And having a friend when you're under 18, that is not what adolescents need. They need a parental. I mean, the whole process of separating from a parental figure is, still underway in eight seventeen, eighteen, 17, 18, you know, and, and you're undermining it by saying, we got to be friends. And this is one of the things we address kind of thoroughly in the book, which is the issue of boundaries. Yes. People's boundaries are very poor and, or they're not aware of them at all, or they don't know how to maintain them or how to flexibly relate to them. I, I mean, it, it is something people have not been paying attention to for a long time, and it is a problem.
0: Boundaries as defined as invisible lines around your emotional or physical self. Um, and usually it's, you know, instilled by experience. But if you don't have experience setting boundaries, then, you know, you should read our book.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, you have this uh, ongoing, um, this ongoing concept, TCB throughout the book. And that stands for trust, compassion and boundaries. Um, so why don't we, um, why don't we just start by, taking that apart. So what does, what does trust mean to you? What does compassion mean? And let's talk even more about boundaries.
1: And, and where did it come from? Tell a little story.
0: So TCB came from me. Uh, I have been obsessed with Elvis Presley since the third grade. And he had his pack of friends, the Memphis mafia, and they all wore TCB necklaces, which stood for taking care of business. And there is a lightning bolt. And I, you know, Before ice skating competitions, I would pray to Elvis uh, as my (laughs) deity. As one does. As one okay. does. And so, uh, TCP has been a framework that I'm very familiar with, uh, in terms of the Elvis context. And so to bring it, bring it into this context was very exciting for me. Um, so when it comes to trust, ultimately it's the ability to feel safe in a relationship. Uh, it needs to be earned and it's, it, it's fragile, right? It can, it can be disrupted, but ultimately it can be rebuilt. Um, I think trust is something, at least in my life, you know, I, I had a very sheltered upbringing and it used to be something that I would dole out, right? If I've known you my whole life, I'll give it to you. But then I moved to New York my freshman year of college and I was, you know, dumped into the sea and I was trusting people too easily because they didn't earn it. Um, And I had been so used to just giving it freely. And part of that has to do with just, you know, my own sense of safety and my own sense of honestly privilege to feel secure enough to trust people. Um, But ultimately, it's something that needs to be earned. It's built over time. And if it's disrupted, it can be rebuilt.
1: And and it, you know, distrust is one of the more common things that I deal with in, in my world with people, you know, drug addicts and whatnot who were traumatized during childhood just destroys trust. And so, helping people reenter a frame where they feel safe has really been one of my primary jobs for many many years
2: yeah i'm I'm curious too, like I'm thinking about just what it's like to be your first year in college just those first weeks of college even when you get there it's like there's this sense like oh my god all these people are my new best friends and mm-hmm. and this is like we're having this incredibly intense experience and maybe i'm even a new person i'm a new kind of person and, and oh yeah I, it can be really easy to just kind of sort of slip and slide all over the place sort
0: of socially and psychologically and emotionally yep absolutely my freshman year of college, I walked around oh, this is a good story. I uh, my one of my childhood best friends, i had just gotten my ears pierced. I was eighteen and I got my ears pierced a little late, but my mom was afraid my brothers were gonna rip them out uh, prior <laughs> no, to I, that.
2: Thought, I thought you were gonna say the, copy you or something. She was afraid <laughs> they were gonna follow suit. Rip them no, out. They were not that
0: cool. When they were they're not that when cool when they were
2: sixteen. Okay. All right. Well, good, good for her.
0: Yeah, she well, she also didn't get her ears pierced until she was sixteen and my grandmother was forty and they did it together. <laughs> And so I had these earrings uh, that were the letter P and somebody counted how many people I introduced myself to in under an hour. And I introduced myself to 56 people. Wow. And when I would see those people again, and they obviously did not remember my name, I would go up and be like... You remember me, and I would show my earring. I'd be like, cheat sheet, cheat sheet, <laughs> and um, that's who I was freshman year of college. And I am glad to have moved on past that. <laughs> but
2: that's okay. But you could make the argument that that's like you're showing social skills. Yeah, I mean, yes. uh, uh, actually, I think that's a really good coping mechanism. I, I, I you're, I when I I was a fresh, we called it freshman then. My first year of college was in 1988. Okay, and I remember I went to small liberal arts college, and I remember getting, there was like an elevator in the dorm, uh, and we would get in and I would like introduce myself or ask somebody's name all the time. And people, this, this one guy's friend of mine, he said, well, you're a conversational slut. And that <laughs> back in 1988, that was like a very <laughs> clever thing to say. Like, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I was like, yes, I am. I'm, I'm showing social skills and I'm breaking the ice. Uh, I'm writing that phrase
0: down. Um, <laughs>
2: It'll come back. It'll come back around. I think it, it would wouldn't wouldn't land now, but but yeah. Like, how do you kind of split the difference between being outgoing and trying to make other people feel comfortable um, and just sort of letting too many people in?
0: I think, and this is sort of the main uh, enterprise of this book is really getting in touch with yourself, right? So, if you trust yourself, have compassion for yourself, and know your own boundaries, then you're less likely to step outside of. What you feel comfortable with, Um, and for me, like as a freshman in college, I did not trust myself. I absolutely had no compassion for myself, and I had no sense of boundaries. And so, though you know, I was going about it in a harmless fashion, I still was you know wishy washy in terms of like what it was I was consenting to, whether that was you interpersonally or uh, sexually, like especially sexually. you know, I, I think everyone has what we, my, my best friend and I like to call the, the freshman year friend, the first friend mm-hmm. that you make your orientation friend who you think you're going to, you know, sell your soul to, buy a house upstate, grow all together. And then two weeks later, it's done. Um, and I definitely had that, uh, because I was, you know, I was ready to just trust anybody willy nilly. And, you know, it's, it's both like a, um, it's a nice way to live just doling out trust left and right, but it's not a very safe way to live. (laughs) Um, And again, I think it's also like a function of, you know, I, I went to a K through 12 school with my graduating class being 92 kids and two of the kids in my class were my siblings. So I was very used to seeing the same faces for 12 years and trusting them implicitly. Um, And so going out into the world, it was a little bit more complicated, obviously.
2: And, Seems like what a lot of this book sort of circles back around to either overtly or implicitly is this idea of consent. I mean, this is yes. a bugaboo when we talk about generational divides. I think like yes. older people tend to be like, Oh, you guys are obsessed with consent. And, uh, you know, you, you have to ask, you know, may I touch you here every step of the way? And that's so unsexy. And there's all sorts of like oversimplified sorts of silly ways of poking fun at that. But it also, it's it's responding to a very real problem uh that a lot of people have been facing for for generations. So how yeah. much uh, yeah how much of the book was motivated by this these questions around consent.
1: So it started as a book on consent. That was the original conversation I had with the publishers. And because it was, you know, it was Pre-COVID, it was well into the Me Too movement. Uh, Paulina was witness to was the woman's name that was carrying the mattress on her back. Uh,
0: Emma, e- Emma Sulkowicz.
1: Emma Sulkowicz. Emma
0: Sulkowicz. Yes,
1: right. And, and this so was a b- yes. big deal on the Columbia campus, and there was
0: that was my senior year of and, college. Uh,
1: we were, you know, I was, South Park was addressing it in a very humorous and extreme ways, and and uh, so I was aware there was a lot of confusion around consent. And by the way. My radio partners for the, the entire – I had our daytime radio show for six, six years, and my one of my first radio partners was Lauren Savon, the woman that was the object of Mr. Weinstein's affection with the potted plant. She was literally the first person really? to – She was literally the first person to say Me to, and she's a brilliant journalist. My, and she left. My next um, partner was Leanne Tweeden, oh the gosh. one who made the issue with um, – What's the Minnesota Senate? Al Franken. Al Franken.
2: Well, so she's the one. Was, she made the issue. She she was the one who the accused issue. him of yeah. sort of being sexually being of yeah. misconduct on on a stage in front of a bunch of people. Yes.
1: Well, and several other things during U.S.O. tour, and and um, and it's funny, both of them had brought these things up before, and and before they felt empowered to really talk about it publicly, um, it was something that Lauren was just kind of going, "Can you believe this? I mean, it's unbelievable the way this guy behaves." And and Leanne would sort of talk about it in terms of this always bothered me. It's always bothered me. You know? But so anyway, so I was deep, deep in it with those guys. And uh, and I remember with Laura in particular, I kept saying, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be a way of it, it helping educate people about this and create a due process around it. And there was so much in it. It was very funny. It was a sort of kind of pre-Trump stuff when that was where a lot of the energy was. You couldn't have good conversations with people. They they'd get so upset. And... Um, But you forget about this, you know, because because then Trump sort of took all the wind out of that whole topic. And this book was supposed to help young people deal with consent because they were especially confused. And then I was thinking, well, you know, if we're going to create a book for young people, I got to get a young person in here. And Pauline is a writer and she understands this topic well. So and the publisher grabbed it and, and that was how it came to be. So we backed into everything through the prism of the lens, really, of consent. And we very quickly didn't want it to be a technical book about legal and medical consent. We wanted consent to be an interpersonal context, a a navigation, a negotiation that you use in having a healthy dynamic with the, the people in your life.
0: And ultimately taking consent out of a sexual context, I think makes it even more understandable and gives people practice in consenting prior to getting into a sexual context. Essentially, if you can't consent uh interpersonally how are you going to know how to consent sexually right
1: right. it's it's too much it's it's, you already missed it's it's you know you should have been practicing this earlier in the relationship
2: right so paulina what are the things that you think older people don't understand about this affirmative consent model
0: i like to say that consent is an ongoing negotiation and so a lot of people and the way it's taught generally, or the way it was taught to me was, you know, consent is sexy. Yes means yes. No means no. And honestly, it's way too binary. It's not simply a yes or no question. It's a ongoing checking in process, you know, uh, being in touch with yourself and also being in touch with your partner. Um, I think the main things that I think of off the top of my head, silence is not consent. Uh, if someone is silent, you shouldn't read that as consent. And also consent can be rescinded at any point during any interaction. Um, I think a lot of people think that since they initially said yes, then, uh, you know, they're beholden to that choice, but there is no rule saying that you have to keep going if you do not want to. And yeah. Oh, no. I feel like I butchered that answer. No, (laughs) not at all. No, keep going. Did you have, sorry. Um, no. And then, oh, also, I think another lesson that I think is really important is that a million no's and one yes is not consent. That is coercive consent. If someone says no, you need to take them at their word. And that's the final answer.
1: Yeah. Coercive consent is something I think we address pretty nicely because uh, people get confused about these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about that. Well,
1: you know, in the, in the insanity of the 70s, uh, <laughs> coerc- coercion was thought of as a progressive <laughs> action, believe it or not. It was it was like, okay, everybody, women and males have the exact same set of desires, but women have been oppressed all these years. So you have to be as aggressive as possible so they don't have to feel guilty by, exp- oh, yes, be a, a, you know, expressing their sexuality. I mean, that was sort of the conversation in the air. I mean, obviously people, you know, they, they wouldn't be actively coercive but just even that philosophy well, this was the was sex so positive thing and it was That's part of right. it was part of That's the right. women's
2: movement that women right. were just as sexually ravenous as men and but, but it, that it,
1: they were but they couldn't express it and men had to help them express it by being aggressive Right? Yes. it's, it's a level of insanity that i i just i can't i you know and it, it occurred it never occurred to me it's funny we should bring this up until I heard Harvey Weinstein defending himself. And he started talking about this. And I was like, holy crap, that is the way people thought back then. And look where it goes. You get to him. That's where it ends up. You end up in a Harvey Weinstein. And the, it was disgusting. It The 70s were the worst decade of all time. I'm sorry. It, well, it ex- except
2: for film. Except for independent cinema. Except for film. And, and except for music. film. Except for okay. Stanley
1: Kubrick and Robert Allman. All
2: right, but Okay. But there is that, but then there's also this extreme. I think, like and music too. Yeah, <laughs> the seventies. So come on, the the seventies yeah. uh, had had some stuff going. Sick collars.
1: It was just sick. It was terrible.
2: Uh, <laughs> I meant sick as in cool, but
1: yeah. But look at the way those rock stars <laughs> behaved. These talk about privilege and male, you know, right. toxic masculinity. Well, and stuff. a lot of
2: quaaludes, a lot of oh, a lot God. of drugs. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. But so, how do we sort of? Negotiate situations like let's take the Emma Sulkowicz case. I mean, we don't have to spend a lot of time here. I, that is, that's a case I I wrote about in in my book. I I remember I've I've been a student at Columbia and I've taught at Columbia. I'm very familiar with that school. She was carrying her mattress around um, in protest of the fact that the administration had not expelled a classmate. Who she had accused of sexual assault. Now, in that case, part of the reason, and you talk about this, Paulina, in the book, the part of the reason that that student w- had not been expelled was that she had, the, she had accused him of misconduct and then went out with him more times, continued to have a sexual relationship with him. So I think it's hard for people of a certain age or just all kinds of people, depending on their experience, to kind of wrap their heads around why would somebody go back to somebody who had assaulted them or with whom they'd felt uncomfortable? And really, is it fair to to lodge a complaint against somebody with whom you continued to have a relationship?
0: I think, you know, when we experience trauma, it's hard to internalize that trauma. And You know, this person was her friend, and so you know, in my own experience of experiencing sexual assault, you know, I've made contact with my abuser, you know, years after the fact, and you know, it's it's it still doesn't deny the fact that amidst a sexual interaction, her consent was rescinded. Right? If I'm remembering correctly, in
2: in the Sulkaowitz case, right? So she initially
0: consented, and then he did something without her consent. And that was the point in which she rescinded her consent. And I think this is the line that people need to understand. You can rescind your consent at any point. And depending on your behavior after or whatever it is, it does not matter. I think ultimately, when you're friends with someone and they betray you like that, it's hard to accept that betrayal. And... I feel a lot of empathy for the behavior that happened afterwards because you don't want to, you know, admit to yourself that someone betrayed your trust and v- violated your boundaries, was acting with no compassion. Um, and I think, I don't know, I, I, I really ultimately just, I, I believe all survivors. I really do. And I, I, no one is, trying to ruin anybody's life. And I think that the act of sexual assault does ruin somebody's life. Um, or it can, Um,
2: but in a case, sorry, but like in a case, you don't have to go into details about your experience, but if you have contacted an abuser years after the fact, for example, would you, or somebody in that situation be wanting some kind of like legal action, like what is it? Just an apology? And obviously, everybody's different. But I think sometimes people get hung up because you say, "Well, there's no due process here," mm-hmm. and so is—is is there some gray area, or not even gray area? Is there some kind of space between? I'm going to go after this person, uh, just you know, with every with every legal tool that I have, and I'm going to blow this off. Is in some cases, is it just helpful to like? Have a conversation, and people can agree about what happened.
0: I so rain reports that three out of four sexual assaults go unreported, and rain and is the um, the rape yeah. abuse yeah. incest national network. Thank you. Um, and I think that statistic stays with me because ultimately there are so many people who are not reporting what happens to them because going through the experience of the legal system, the police system, whatever it is, is traumatic. And ultimately, most of the time, justice is not served. Even if you you report it, even if you go through the process of, you know, finding justice, the system may not serve you. And often it's re-traumatizing to go through that experience. And so ultimately, I think what I would say is that it's a case by case situation. If you know, if you're someone who has evidence and is ready to legally prosecute, go, go, do it. Fight for what you need. Um, if you need to have a conversation, um, what is that book? Um, oh, things I didn't talk about with my mother. Mm-hmm. Is that the one where she interviews a rapist? Is that the one I'm thinking of?
1: And I know what your concerns are, right? It, it's that there are aspects to interpersonal relationships where people misread each other that don't require the legal system, right? And, and that's really what we're trying to educate people about to get them to sort of use healthier kinds of dynamics earlier so they don't get into these situations that are out of, out of hand or out of control where they misread each other. The, the issue of people coming back around, you know, the, the thing about particularly if somebody's had previous trauma is uh, trauma survivors blame themselves for everything that happens to them and they feel a lot of shame. And so they're they're sometimes going back and trying to repair that because they feel like, oh, what did I do? To, I, I must have done this somehow. Somehow I created this. And, and that's the unfortunate part of when people do a lot of blaming of themselves. That, that to me always makes me sad. But you're right. When they do do that, they do mitigate the options at hand. That's the reality. Um, that the the ability. To, but I I don't like. Yeah, unfortunately, the your, the point I made with Lawrence Sivan, you know, years ago, which was there isn't kind of a good due process mm-hmm. to all this, unfortunately, and so we're just trying to get people to be healthier in their relationships. They don't get in a situation that really feel like they've got to go to the legal system in order to make things right because. That's a, that's a major problem then. And it is re-traumatizing it and it better be worth it to you because you're not going to feel better because of it. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just, it's really a very unfortunate thing.
0: The, um, the book that I was thinking of is things we didn't talk about when I was a girl by Jeannie Benasco, And in that she interviews her rapist, uh, 14, 16 years later. And she, you know, transcribes the conversation and moves through the experience of listening to herself and investigating the ways in which she's catering around to his feelings and the ways in which she's not holding him accountable. And the book is really a testament to all the feelings I think that most survivors feel when confronting their perpetrator. Um, and I think she does an excellent job in that, you know, you learn about yourself when you are trying to seek justice. And especially as women and, and as demonstrated in her book, you know, we often try to make the other person feel better. And mm-hmm. so she is in this context interviewing her rapist and being like, Oh, it's fine. Don't yeah. worry about it. And she holds herself accountable and is like, Oh God, I said that. Um, but I really recommend that book to anybody generally because I, I thought that it was such an interesting conceit. And also I think it, it moves through all the feelings that, Uh, that would happen when, or it does happen when you talk to someone who's, you know, committed assault against you.
2: So much of the book has to do with knowing yourself. It sounds Mm -hmm. like so Mm -hmm. basic, but Mm -hmm. I, I really felt in reading the book, like that was at the core of so much of that. Um. So, I mean, it started off as a book about consent. So, how did it sort of broaden and become just kind of about stuff that's hard to talk about in in general? Because the reason that we have, like you just said, the reason that these issues around mm-hmm. consent and and being uncomfortable and and you know sexual misconduct situations is because people just aren't in touch with their own feelings, as mm-hmm. they used to say in the seventies, uh, and so. What what is that about, Paulina?
0: For me, when I became a part of this project, it was very important for me to try to make this a resource for LGBTQT kids and their families. Um, and ultimately, what it came down to is we. We wanted to both explore gender, sexuality and identity, but also ultimately just taking consent out of a sexual context. And once we took it out of a sexual context, we were able to recognize all the situations in which consent is instrumental, whether that's, you know, friendships or, you know, dealing with teachers or dealing with bullies. Um, there were just so many more realms that consent was instrumental in than we even anticipated. And so in order to kind of encapsulate all the scenarios that someone may encounter where consent is instrumental, we really came to the understanding that in order to consent, you need to know yourself and what you know you consent to. So taking TCB as a framework, once you trust yourself, have compassion for yourself and know your own boundaries, then you can trust others, have compassion for others and respect their boundaries. Um, Of course, that's sort of a simplistic relating uh, framework, but ultimately, you know I think it's a way to apply t c b to all situations that aren 't just sexual,
2: yeah, I think that's really well said, but i'm also thinking like in a lot of scenarios you don 't know until you try, right mm. so not just sexually with with anything, I think it's like you know to know your boundaries the power of saying no is huge. And I think it's hard for a lot of people. And Drew, I think you've written about how it's hard for you to say no to people or disappoint. people. And you're, you're, you know, you're the overachiever in you has a a problem with that. And so I want to hear about that, but just like, how do you kind of, um, How do you sort of force yourself, not force yourself, but like really give yourself permission to say no with also also without cutting yourself off from potential experiences?
1: Well, the part of trust is a leap of faith, right? You you have to decide when to leap into something uh, and trust that it's going to be okay, or that you can manage your feelings or manage your boundaries in terms of boundary formation. I had to do years of therapy. I mean, the, my, my that book Cracked I did was a metaphor for the evolution of a caretaker in a medical setting who had poor boundaries. And as a result of a series of experiences in that book, developed more secure boundaries. But the reality of my own personal experience was I had to do years of therapy in order to develop those boundaries.
2: And why did you have poor boundaries? Was it because of the way you were brought up? Or yeah, your family of origin stuff.
1: I mean, there was a lot of abuse and there was um, a lot of, uh, you know, narcissism and everybody being responsible for everybody else's feelings. And so the, the boundaries were like impossible. They, they weren't taught. And so that it's something that if you really do have, if you have boundary problems, if you can't assert yourself in a healthy way, then that is time for therapy. Therapy can do wonders for that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually I have a hard time saying no to people if they ask for a favor or like I don't want people to be mad at me. That's always yep. my problem. I cannot Same. stand it.
1: Well but again, but <laughs> but not liking conflict is not necessarily a bad boundary, right? It just might be your preference. You just don't like conflict. But but for me, you know, I I would get overwhelmed by other people's feelings. Uh and, and what and had trouble distinguishing their feelings from my own, right? Right. So I would think in my, my, what I believed I was experiencing was a deep understanding of the other people's feelings. What I was actually experiencing was the mobilization of my pain. And so I'd have to stop it in them to make it stop in me. Right, you get that? Yeah, and, no, I, and that's a deeper problem.
2: Yeah, I think we talked about this, Drew, when when you were on the show last year, because yeah. there is this there is this uh, strange juxtaposition. I think both of us have, I certainly have, where I I kind of liked a court conflict in my professional life, in my writing. I don't care if people are mad at me or hate me, or you know, I don't mind being controversial. No,
1: I've seen I've seen what you've been going through. You've not been super happy about it. Well, but like I don't. It.
2: Well, it's not. I just I, I'm not really interested in. Saying something that is going to please everybody, so I right. have this sort of prof- I have this professional s- professional sphere where I know there's going to be a certain amount of people upset with me. I always say nobody. I'm sure I said this when you were in my class, Paulina. Nobody will love you unless somebody hates you. But that's <laughs> that's in the creative arena and the sort of intellectual sphere. When it comes to my personal life and my personal interactions, I can't stand it if somebody doesn't like me or is mad or upset. It's just like the worst thing ever.
0: Wow. I feel the same way.
2: Yeah. Um Anyway, this, this doesn't have to be about me. So the this, so Paulina, you said this started off as a book really geared towards LGBT kids and did it just become just broader as you went
0: along? Uh, you, you know, it isn't specifically an LGBTQ resource, but I didn't want it to not be an LGBTQ resource, right? So ultimately, I really wanted to distill the basic concepts so that, you know, the kid in middle America or the evangelical kid gets this book because, you know, the parent trusts my dad brand and all of a sudden they're getting the gay agenda. That was sort of uh, my goal. Um, But ultimately, I think... Now all kids are being asked to question who they are in a way that wasn't even in the popular consciousness 10 years ago. And so I think it's not just about, you know, catering to LGBTQ kids, but it's about educating all kids so that they're more tolerant and understanding, uh, when it comes to differences in other people.
2: Right. And I am curious what kinds of conversations the two of you have had about these issues, not just in writing the book, but just over the course of the last decade or so. Because again, this is something that older people really have a hard time making sense of, uh, sometimes for obvious reasons, and
0: sometimes just because we're being obstinate. But (laughs) definitely an issue. I think um, my dad has always asked me questions. I think there's a, a... A lineage of question asking in my household. And, you know, when I first went to college and I was encountering feminism for the first time, and, you know, all my friends were gay. And, you know, my dad always was asking me about, you know, what is the proper etiquette? What is going on? How do I further inform myself? And I think because of that, we've been having discussions about queer identity for 10 years now. And ultimately, I feel really lucky in that. My dad trusted me to kind of take it away and make it uh, accessible and and informative in a way that I think was facilitated by all of our conversations. I, I,
1: I remember the first time you brought up preferred gender pronouns, and I was like, well, "It's I don't not know.
0: preferred anymore; it's just gender pronouns." Well, what, well, what year was it?
1: You were in college, probably a sophomore or a junior
0: twenty
2: twelve twenty thirteen and,
1: and it was preferred gender pronouns at the time yeah. and i said i have no idea what you're talking about and you're like that blows my mind i can't believe it i cannot <laughs> believe it and you had to explain it to me and, and i was like well i have no idea what you're talking about and and it seems weird to me but uh, okay let's move on let's <laughs> go forward and, and and i i have to say in writing the book that there were times when i as as a biologist and a physician had to step in and go no this is not no there are certain things in biology that we have to be clear about a- and we tried to include that in the gr- in the bu- in the book
0: yeah we essentially got it down to the chromosomal level but essentially you know ultimately the bottom line in our book is that biological sex does not determine gender and gender does not determine sexuality they can play a factor in both but ultimately each facet of your identity is it, what am I saying? Let me repent it,
1: it gets it gets a little weird. Let me ask you this: I've never asked you this question. If if there is no gender, if gender fluid is uh, sort of a standard, would that be right to say it? How can there be gay?
0: Well, if you're a non-binary person and you are attracted to someone on the queer spectrum, that inherently makes you queer. I think,
1: but not gay. Yeah, gay
0: is an an
2: orientation not an identification right no i understand but if you're
1: not if if you're you're not not a male if you're not a him and you're attracted to a him yeah what is that
0: well (laughs) non-binary i guess it's queer
1: queer captures all that Yeah. yeah
0: like you you wouldn't necessarily unless you are specifically attracted to one specific gender and you are the same gender then you're gay but if you're non-binary, okay, see, do you see why be, this is so impossible?
1: Yes, yes, yes I do. I have, okay, I need a if you guys can't sort this out every time.
2: after writing an entire book about it, but okay, I don't, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of of tr- trans issues because God knows I've done that many times, probably too many on this show. But, but okay, Paulina, what is if we can all if we can agree that sex is biological. Gender is something else. Gender is the performance of sex. That was Judith Butler's gambit, right? Um, what is the issue? Uh, it seems like a lot of the conflict within trans activism has to do with these muddled and muddy definitions of sex versus gender. I, what? Where is the conflict, actually? I can't even figure it, kind of like, pick it out of the weeds.
0: I think ultimately when it's gender essentialist, right? So if you have a vagina you're female, if you have a penis you're male. And I think ultimately the way that I really understand it is that you have a biological sex that will determine the and, and that will determine your medical care depending on what hormones you're on um and also, you know, just the equipment you have. Um uh, but ultimately for me the way I understand it is that gender is not defined by your biological sex. It can be, but ultimately, the exploration of identity and the the feeling of ge- gender is something that you become increasingly aware of. Um, which which I think gets to the bottom line of just it is an individual process, right? How you define yourself is up to you. And I think um, I think it's complicated.
1: Here's something that worries me. I worry about this. We didn't mention this in the book, but as long as Megan's bringing this all up which is in in the category of gender fluid where people are not clear on their gender identity and kind of moves around throughout psychological history (laughs) or history of mental health uh, a a unstable identity was considered problematic like it was a Mm -hmm. developmental issue that needed to be solved I, i worry that that. I I don't know. I just, that, that, that was such an important part of my training and how we thought about being whole and being healthy. I just worry about those people that are all over the place. I think
0: that non-binary identity is less amorphous as you think.
1: I I agree, but there are people that literally move around, right. From different things. Right.
0: But I don't necessarily think that that is a factor in, in, you know, you know, I think that's part of the exploration of identity and that for some people it is really fast and loose and it is a day by day experience. Well,
1: but that, I think the idea of exploration of identity after a certain stage of development is something I worry about. I'm mm-hmm. not saying it's good or bad. I just, I worry about it based on my training. Hmm. Just like, ugh, I, I worry that that may burden people Forever, not to have a, a firm sense.
2: Wait, of wait. It. Exploration of identity after a certain a, stage gen- of development. Gender
1: identity. Gender identity. Yeah, after- you know, if you're if you're a forty year old still, you know, not clear on my, your gender identity, be like, mm, that must be a burden. I would think.
0: I think it happens of- less than you would think. But I, I think I, I agree. most people, I agree.
1: But it's rarely discussed. It's just something that kind of worries. We we never talked about
0: it. You know yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, all the non-binary people or trans people in my life. Um, you know, are fuller, brighter, more brilliant versions of themselves as trans people. And, you know, it's, it's an empowering act to claim that identity. And there, I mean, it's- I have a non-binary therapist and they came out later and their sense of self is not amorphous.
1: Right. It's clear non-binary. That's a single thing. That, that's not the one I'm talking about. You're it's talking about here. gender fluid. Fluid, yeah. But it, it's it's a moot point because it is such a small number. I agree with you. But but Megan, I've gotten to know uh, Caitlyn Jenner very well since we last spoke. And uh, she it further has helped me with this topic in, in that, A, I was able to sort of see the pain she had when she was living as Bruce and created this huge thing, what she called character, Bruce. I mean,
2: talk about overcompensation.
1: The, oh, yeah. You oh, become- yeah.
2: You become an Olympian of such, yeah. magnitude. and then
1: on the on the Wheaties box, you were know, yeah. the greatest Olympian in the I really in the world. And he, she said that that in 1980 she's never suffered more than that year. That was where she really was in pain. And I thought, wow, that is a long time to suffer with this forty years. And now she says, don't, don't. She was just sort of coaching me up, saying, no, don't. It's no different than me being left-handed. It's just me. It's just what I am. It's just what I, I don't don't make a lot out of it. It just is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was kind of a very comfortable way of of dealing with in somebody you're friendly with. So I, I don't even call it dealing with, but understanding
0: it. Mm-hmm. Understanding. I mean, isn't contact the number yes, one contact. factor in prejudice, <laughs> always, right? Always, always, always. Um, because for me, one of my dear friends transitioned after college, and so I was really there to watch her whole transition. And for me, it was instrumental in terms of understanding that transition saves lives. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those trans people are going to survive considering that, you know, 70% of LGBTQ and trans high schoolers report, uh, you know, being systematically um, targeted because of their identity. And, you know, over half of transgender and non-binary youth, according to the Trevor project, have seriously considered suicide And so being trans is really hard. It's also beautiful. It's trans people are fantastic, but it's a very hard identity to be because ultimately you have people questioning you all the time and all of that. Um,
2: Well, and also you have what's going on now is that it seems like there are some people who the, there are young kids, for instance, who, are saying they're trans and they might not be, they might be, and they might not be. So Mm -hmm. if you are a trans person, I would think that that doesn't help. I mean, I I'm cringing as I say this, because this is the kind of thing that really infuriates people in some corners of the trans community, but it is a phenomenon.
0: Yeah. But I also think that (sighs) I hear that those cases exist, but I also think that they're not the majority. Um, And, you know, ultimately when it comes down to it, I'm a believer of just listening to trans people in their experience. Right. So I can elucidate about my friend. I can talk about the LGBTQ community, but ultimately when it comes down to it, it's a case by case situation and that each person should be, you know, um, in charge of the ways in which, uh, they define themselves. Including
2: like a 10 year old.
0: I, so I have a friend who's 10 to 12 year old is, uh, Trans and their identity has shifted over the years in different ways. And I think that they do a really great job of just allowing their kid to explore and try. And ultimately, you know, there is always the question of like, you know, should kids medically transition or whatever? I think it's a case by case situation for some kids that will save their lives. And for some kids, they're not ready for it. Um, and I mean, it's obviously a bigger issue that I, can't even begin to Yeah, this to, is a whole other
2: conversation. It's a whole so. other
0: conversation. Right. Don't you're not don't feel obliged to <laughs>
2: just call well, way way I, way I, down I, the hole.
1: I, look, I, I look at it this way. One of the one of the, uh, the the you're talking about medical care, which is, you know, strong medication in the form of hormones and surgical interventions. I blame my profession for not coming up with the right treatments to match the right patients that that's their job is to really figure that out so we don't have people that shouldn't be making those that decision making we should have people that that need this treatment and get it because they they meet criteria and we're just we've been just asleep at the wheel a little bit i think in terms of matching the the timing and the type of intervention to the right patient that that really bugs me
0: This is Watkins Welcome with Bridget Fettasey. I love hearing people's stories of resilience and grit. This is why I created this podcast. We are very excited to welcome Jim Gaffigan, Yasmin Mohammed, Glenn Beck, Tim Dillon, Abigail Schreier, Jeff Garland, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Sam Harris, Heather Hying, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald, Sarah Shahi, Colin Quinn. If there's a culture of victimhood, then let's tell stories of grit and survival subscribe and listen now on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts
2: pauline do you think that there are dramatically more trans people in the world than we have previously thought
0: i think no i just think that there's more space for them now i think that as a culture, we are coming to terms with the fact that there are trans people and that they exist. And I think that I i, I think I've seen a statistic that it's like, you know, only like one point seven percent of the population is trans. And I don't quote me on that. Maybe I don't want to say that. Well, I've seen statistics
2: that are like point oh one seven. But yeah. Statistics, really? Yeah. Statistics are,
0: you know, slippery,
2: slippery things.
0: Yeah, I I ultimately think that the more we are comfortable with accepting trans people and seeing trans people, and you know, the more that they're in movies and TV shows and all of those things, I think the more people are going to understand that gender is flexible. Even I, you know, I identify as female, but ultimately um you know i'm starting to question like am i a she they you know am i is is my gender more flexible than i realize and i may come to the realization that it's not and for some people it will be the exact opposite um i mean i'm also in new york and i feel like and there's a lot more queer by, people by the way i
1: was in. in france and they they will have none of this zero um it's interesting they they their thing is gender is in our language it's something it's in our it's deeply in our system and it is not going to change and um they're also bewildered by the American preoccupation with philosopher French philosophers from seventy years ago <laughs> it's the post structuralists who have been proven on the French to be completely irrelevant and wrong, and so they are like who like like uh um Give me some of the post-structuralists like Chausser and and uh, Derrida and uh, Michel Foucault. Oh, and these Foucault. guys completely well, completely. I don't think a,
0: a, everyone knows, but, but completely discredited on this show in they
2: do. Excuse me, my <laughs> yeah. my, my, my <laughs> listeners know all the
1: post-structuralists. I, I'm missing the main one. What's the main one? Like Chausser. Uh, anyway, the post-structuralist who you know. Uh, they they just the French are just laughing at us. It's so interesting that they have such a different experience it's, of all this than but we. This do. is
2: going on, and again, I don't want to. I I want to. I don't want to dwell on this, but like this phenomenon is happening. In the UK, certainly, it's happening in Scandinavia. It's happening in Australia. It, this is it's happening yes. in the in well, the developed world. Well, there's, yeah. there's,
0: there's, precedent in other cultures. Like, oh, I know, oh absolutely, You yeah. know, there's two spirits. No, I'm not saying right.
1: it's wrong. I just think it's interesting how yeah. differently it's being experienced around yeah. the world. So.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, well, Drew, I know you have to to jump off. We, we got another,
1: we got another 15 minutes. So, if you
2: okay, want. all right. Well, yeah. I want to, um, okay, I want to shift for a, a few minutes here and talk about love line because I. I think right. you know Drew. You know that I I came to you and Adam because I was such a huge devotee of Loveline. I listened all through the '90s. I thought that it was brilliant improv. It was incredibly helpful advice, and it was just like the two of you came together in this really sort of magical and unprecedented way. Um, but the tone of the show, especially in the 90s into the early 2000s, was very different than the kind of tone we hear today. So Paulina, were you aware of Line* when you were a kid? Did you listen to oh. it? Did you know what it was?
0: Um, I never listened to it, but I was aware of it in that, you know, I have memories of being in the studio, uh, with the producers and them covering my ears at certain points. <laughs> and there are a few segments that I got to guest appear on where I talked about my hamster. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, those memories are very vivid to me. Like I remember falling asleep in the sound studio. Um, and ultimately, like my peers were listening. And so, you know, within my, you know, small private school, like no one was, everyone was like, that's Paulina's dad, you know, but when I would encounter kids from other schools, it was always like, so does your dad talk to you about sex? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, no, I got to go. Um, it was always devastating when a, cu- a crush of mine would ask that question, mm-hmm. uh-huh. that I would immediately lose interest. <laughs> um, so it was always in my brain. And that it existed.
2: Right. Okay, so I want to do a little experiment here. I've never done anything like this, so bear with me. I want to play um a little snippet of a really classic uh clip from Love Line. This is David Allen Greer.
0: Drew, yes, you're, you're exactly going to remember okay, so this Okay, so this is the
2: this is the classic the um the birth control pills as names of African American children, okay? I'm going to I'm going to play that my my audience can handle this. I'm going to play a little bit of it. And I want Paulina to react. Okay. And if this doesn't work, we can cut it out. But I want to try this. Okay, here we go. I'm playing it on my phone.
1: All right, Corinne. Here's the deal with the morning after pill, all right? The okay. emergency contraception. Not the morning after emergency contraception. And you need to take, you need to look at your pill. All right. And it needs to have uh, either between 0.5 and 0.75 milligrams of levonigestrel. Okay. Which you take now and again 12 hours later. Or two milligrams of norethindrone. Dave has a sister named norethindrone. <laughs> yeah. Those. And he, again, it's <laughs> take a take a dose of that now and a dose 12 hours later. That's what you need. There can also be the 100 micrograms of est- ethanol estradiol, All which right. is... Ethanil! Uh, estradiol! It's the progesterone. It's the pro, it's the, 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 <laughs> the levonorgestrel. And
0: where is levonorgestrel?
1: <laughs> or the i
0: norethindrone. norethindrone! Put that, put that wiffle ball back down, Come in the house! <laughs> I'm sick of these kids, man. <laughs> no, I think
2: they're what? What is it? <laughs> <If> Ever <they're strong. laughs>
1: what else? My, my, my dang name is <laughs> 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 Mr. Pristone Pristone. I'm here to pick up Mr. Pristone (laughs) Mr. Pristone (laughs) Mr. Pristone Mr. Stop You, if you don't get into this Dodge Comet at the count of three I will wear your behind out and get that for
2: real your sister please Dangerous. Okay. All right. All right. So that, that, that you're
1: making point. me miss him so much. He, he I, has cut off a relationship with him, David Allen Greer. I know. And I, I don't know I, why. We don't know why. Is it because of and, uh, Adam? Is it because you do something to do with Adam? It has something to do with Adam. And he, but he will not make, it will not say anything to me other than the horrible jabs on Twitter.
2: Oh, uh, so, I have to yeah. say. So this is how Gen X I am. I think the two funniest things. In, uh, the popular culture that I can think of are, are this clip and the, (laughs) and the scene in Team America World Police where they do the spoof of rent and they sing about AIDS. Everyone has AIDS. Oh my God. AIDS, 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 AIDS. AIDS, AIDS, Like my dog has AIDS. Every, yeah. Okay. This is, this is what a horrible person I am. So I, this is, I, I, uh, I just think that's hilarious. However, it would be unthinkable today. Paulina, this falls on your on your uh, on your on your innocent millennial ears. Uh,
0: what are what's going through your your mind and heart right now? So I teach comedy writing to high schoolers, and my three rules are: don't be a jerk, play to the height of your intelligence, and punch up. Don't punch down. And so, ultimately, punching up has to do with your racial identity, your sexual identity, your your ethnicity, everything. And essentially, what I require each student to do is to think about their identity in proximity to others, right? So, punching up would be like a president or a teacher. Yeah, somebody um, with more power. Yeah. Somebody with no more power. Um, for me, I feel comfortable punching at other white women. Uh, I don't think it's cool to make jokes about ethnicity or sexual orientation, and that would be punching down. Ultimately, I think this bit is successful because David Allen Greer is Black, and he is not punching down at people. He's more punching laterally. Um, and so my sensitive sensibilities are are not threatened by this segment. And I also thought that this segment was going to be a different segment. Oh, what did Um, you think it was going to be? There's, yeah, there's one that's like about like what would happen when I started dating. Oh, you. Oh no. uh, It's a cartoon. It's a cartoon. Someone made it a cartoon.
1: Where, 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 where Adam and David start improvising and, and Adam goes, yeah, I'm going to, let's say David shows up at the door, Drew. And I put a little, hear a device in his ear so I can talk to him and and uh, get him to say what I want him to say. And like David a Cyrano goes, oh, thing. Wait, Exactly. Going to pick and up
2: Paulina?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So the whole cartoon, is, the cartoon is like... I'll
1: send you the cartoon. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's fantastic. Scarred me. <laughs> it's fantastic, though. Oh, my God.
2: But
0: so you were like
2: uh, a little girl and they were making these jokes? Yes.
0: <laughs> and my mom, like years later, posted on Facebook and was like, this hilarious video, Lincoln Laugh, and I watched it and I was like, "What? <laughs> Prolapse my anus?" Well, what? Was, oh. That was Dag. Yeah, that uh. was one of the jokes. I didn't find it funny. <laughs> I mean, there uh, but there is
2: Yeah, that I don't I I have to say I don't remember that bit. Either I wasn't listening that night or I blocked it out. But uh I mean, there <laughs> is something to be said for uh being really funny about Difficult subjects. I mean, the mm-hmm. reason that that show was so successful is you guys made fun of the callers in a way that absolutely endeared those callers to you. And mm-hmm. it was a way of establishing intimacy
0: mm-hmm. with those callers. That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: But I wouldn't say that Adam Carolla always punches up. I would say that he tends to punch down. So if we were having this conversation with Adam Carolla, I think I would ask him the question. Do you feel that you punch up at all times? Uh, see,
2: and I, I- wouldn't say he, Yes. Yeah. Well, but see, I have this whole theory about punching up and punching down is that when you, like like when women punch up, when women complain about men being, you know, complain about toxic masculinity or male power or whatever, and they're punching up, I feel like you're effectively handing them power. You're putting them on a pedestal that they are not necessarily on. And so you're you're giving them power that they don't have. So... I would, I would imagine, I mean, not that Adam would articulate it like that, but uh, I feel like he would say, well, I treat everybody equally. I'm an equal opportunity puncher.
1: Right. He, he would say that. He says, you know, I, I come from poor white trash and, uh, you know, I just, I just call it like I see it. I don't, I, don't, I don't have any biases, he would say.
0: Yeah, but also he's not a poor white man anymore.
1: He sure was one for a long time.
0: Well, not anymore. Yeah, that's true. He's a man with power. Yeah. So, True.
1: so I sent you the cartoon. Yeah, I, I see it, to
2: you. it. I see that. Okay. It's, um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm Romeo gonna and Juliet. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> clever. Um. So, okay. But like, do you think that show, like Paulina, do you think that, um, like how what would a version of Loveline be like today? Would it? Would any iteration of that work? I mean, I know it's still on. I know you're still doing it, but with the callers calling in every night,
1: it's very different. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, it it to me, from, from what I've heard of Loveline and everything, it feels like it couldn't exist in the same way just because the primary medium has changed, right? No one is staying up listening to late night radio. Mm-hmm. It's true. podcasts, fine, YouTube, whatever it is. Um, but I think sort of the the facilitation of being able to ask questions still is very much needed. And I think, you know, though the medium has changed, I think that the message is the same and that, you know, there's a safe place to ask questions. Well, and
1: my After Dark show has sort of become that. Uh, I don't know if you ever listened to that oh, show, Megan. No, but no, no, I will. Yeah, yeah I do, and I do it sometimes with Tom Segura's wife, sometimes by myself. And the same stuff is starting to come to me there, only sort of more extreme. And it's by voice message. And we just Mm -hmm. sort of respond to it and talk to it. And it's the same confusions are out there. But you're right. It it, it doesn't lend itself any longer to the same um, improvisational humor. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. It's different. It's very different. And, and in fact, I just sent you another piece that Adam did that is a cultural appropriation piece but was hysterical. Oh, it was chief thunder bear. Yes.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that one ever? I, I probably, I, yes. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll look at that when we get off. Yeah. Uh, so you write comedy,
0: Paulina. Do you, do, uh, do you do stand up? What's your, no. uh, I mean, everyone asks me, so I feel like at a certain point I should do it. Um, but I, I studied at the Second City Conservatory. I did improv and sketch there uh, before I did my MFA, and so uh, I feel really lucky that uh, improv and sketch are part of my foundational uh, understanding of myself. I did it at you know 22, and um, I've been teaching through the um, the School of Professional Studies at Columbia every summer. Slash, I did it this whole last year, and um, yeah, I, I I don't explicitly write comedy, but I like to have a sense of humor in everything that I write. Um, and ultimately, like those three rules, the don't be a jerk, you know, play to the height of your intelligence and punch up, don't punch down are sort of my comedic framework.
2: So, Drew, what goes through your mind when you when you hear that summation?
1: Um, I think I kind of I, she, look, she writes comedically very, very well. In fact, she writes the best comic dialogue naturally that I've read in a long time. Uh, and she infused this book with a, a good deal of sort of lightheartedness that was well yes. appreciated in these yes. topics.
0: Some people found it on Goodreads a little too kitschy, but that's fine. That's
2: who oh, I am. Goodreads, never, ever, ever read Goodreads. Oh, I've been checking it every no, day. That's oh, the first. No, 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 no. That's the first rule <laughs> of being an author. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go near that. It's like kryptonite. Um, It's like, if you just, if you touch it, 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 your head will, your eyes will start
0: bleeding. It's It's my favorite social media platform. Oh my God. Because I just, I read 50 books this year. I'm still, I'm trying to get to 60. And so (laughs) that's my favorite place to log in and be like, I finished this book today. Here's what I thought. Uh, Though rarely, I I don't really write reviews. It's like Um, the fifth bit of reading, except for some (laughs) really mean people on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, There's, did you ever read the book, um, Kathleen Hale is a Crazy Stalker? No. Okay. So it's a, a brilliant book of essays, and it only has a one star review on Goodreads because one of the essays is about her, like, essentially stalking someone who wrote a mean Goodreads review on her. <laughs> and so all the Goodreads reviewers are like, this is not okay. Like, this is fucked up. And, I loved the book. I thought it was brilliant, but it's it's sad that you know one stalkerish essay will uh, really take you to one oh, yeah. star. Yeah, on wow, that's very very meta too.
2: I mean, yeah. but they give one star reviews to like you know the the brothers Karamazov. I mean, really <laughs> company. Exactly. I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about that. Um, Well, so So just to, um, this has been such a fun conversation, uh, just to kind of wrap things up here. I'm curious, what is the thing about the other that frustrates you the most? Eat eat one another? Yeah. Yeah.
0: One another. I don't know who Uh, wants to go first. My dad is on his phone constantly.
2: Yeah, that could be frustrating. That's
0: been the case for the past. The first ever interview that I ever gave was in our house after dad got HLN. And the first thing I ever said on TV was, my dad is on his phone more than his teenagers. And everybody laughed and we all thought it was playful. And now it is a, a fixture in our family, uh, the cell phone.
1: It's unfortunate. What I'm usually doing and what I've done even during this interview is signing prescriptions. I'm doing fun things like that. Oh. You know, I'm signing things, which if I don't sign them during a certain hours of the day, I am, well, people are going to get hurt so i just I just have to stay ahead of it, and it's just unfortunate. It's just the world I live okay in right now. I
2: have a couple used for while we're on this yeah okay the,
1: the world I used to live in was and i'm I'm not saying this to be defensive, I'm not happy about this, but was my pager going off every five minutes and having to call people
0: <laughs> I remember that, that the pager. was that
1: was the way it used to be. I'd have to be on the phone constantly, and this is this has been a way of obviating that or solving that problem, but it creates its own problem, yeah um. It's, you know it's hard to talk about things you're frustrated about with your kids. I mean, cuz I'm so happy with yeah. her what she's doing it and who she is. It doesn't have to be
2: awkward as as is the yeah. title of your book. I mean, even um, just kind of uh maybe if you're frustrated on on her behalf. I just think it's, yeah, it's I'm really thinking about hard. It. I, I, really you, hard. You know you know it, it's a, I have
1: a general I have a general frustration with with your generation of um I don't know how to describe it. Getting on with business, is the best way I can describe it. Like, getting- I think
0: what you usually say is that um, my generation is intolerant of ordinary misery.
1: Oh, oh. yeah, but so is mine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't. I don't like people. Yeah, I think. I think if you don't come to terms with ordinary misery, you're going to be extra miserable because there's a certain amount of ordinary misery. The in baseline
2: life. misery that yeah. we all
1: live with. Um, but but it's no. It's more that and maybe this may be kind of a recent thing. I I feel like. We I don't, Megan, I don't know if you like, gen Xers were so much into this we were like in a hurry to like get get going we had to get started and start to make a living and start to get to pay yes. a rent. And, blah, 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 blah. And, and I don't feel that from from your generation so much yeah uh, and we and, and there's more of a looking for a perfect opportunity to do the perfect job and the perfect thing and it's like that that comes way later if you're yeah. lucky, you know. But yeah. now maybe it's just go go pay your rent.
2: But maybe that's their sort of paradox of choice dynamic. Like there's just too many options.
1: There's I also feel bad for them. I do yeah. because it is too much. Because I had I had something similar when I was like nineteen. I was like, what do I want to do? I they could do this. Too many choices. I don't I don't like that either. That that's also very uncomfortable. So I, I'm compassionate to that, empathic of that. But it's always so kind of frustrating. It's like I want I want to see them. And it's not even that I I just worry about them. Again, I care. I want them to like, I see that that I know that's a necessary step in things. And I, I don't feel like that's happening with the sense of urgency that we have. Mm-hmm. Is, is sense of urgency now a bad thing to say too. Somebody oh. I read that somewhere. Really? Like, oh, really? Yeah, the, yeah. That that was a white supremacy. It's a, it's a sort of clique. colonial, yeah. colonialist. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I <laughs> well, definitely like everything I've ever done. Punctuality.
2: Punctuality. We're not allowed. Yeah, I'm sorry. Everything I've ever done
1: is had a sense of sense of urgency, and it continues to. But that's how I was.
2: Do you think anxiety, in and of itself, is going to be canceled? Maybe, maybe anxiety <laughs> is that's something that people in positions of power have disproportionate amounts of. So yes. So we better just cancel. Just being it. an anxious person is uh, sort of you know imposing your your privilege of I, I like another. where you're going. I like, the I like privilege your privilege of anxiety. I, the privilege of be anxiety.
1: Be good yeah. thing. It could be of, cancel anxiety, everybody. This is good.
2: I know.
1: Progress. But then here. I
2: will have nothing. I will. I will be <laughs> a, absolute, absolute into the <laughs> void. Um, not um, without my anxiety, <laughs> my
1: anxiety away, What will I have?
2: All right. Oh, well, oh my God. Well, you guys, this is. This is a great book, um, really well written. Uh, no surprise, Paulina, because you're a wonderful writer, as Thank I you. as I know firsthand, since you were in
0: my my private
2: workshop, and which um, was an
0: amazing experience. And I think about it often, and well, I still am um, friends with some of the people in that workshop. Yeah,
2: it's people people stay in touch. It's a great thing. Well, you're welcome back anytime. Um, it's, I'm uh, there. Uh, I'm so there. Uh, ongoing. So uh yeah, well this is this is a terrific book. It doesn't have to be awkward dealing with relationships, consent, and other hard to talk about stuff. So congratulations to, to both of you. It's um a really uh a really admirable and successfully uh pulled off effort. So thank well you. Done. So much. Thank you
1: for spending some time talking to uh, us about
2: it. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being on the show and uh come back anytime.
1: Thanks for done. having us. See you Megan.
2: That was my conversation with physician and media personality, Dr. Drew Pinsky and writer Paulina Pinsky. Their new book is It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, dealing with relationships, consent, and other hard to talk about stuff. And it's just out from Clarion Books. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. The new YouTube channel for this show is the Unspeakable Channel, which is where you will find the unspeak easy. Video conversations with all kinds of people about all kinds of things. This is wholly separate from the podcast. Join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable to get full access to these videos. And lots of other things, including ad free versions of this podcast, discounts on nuanced AF merchandise, chances to come to Zoom hangouts. Plus, uh, it just really helps me because I do this show pretty much by myself and uh, it's a lot of work. I do have help, though. I want to thank Myra Ortega, who deciphers my editing notes and cuts this show together beautifully. Also, David Perez, who handles the production side. And also, Scott Schaefer, who maintains the website. And that is theunspeakablepodcast.com and makes graphics for me and is helping out with the videos and just generally does stuff I don't know how to do, which is most things. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
1: Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club.
2: Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do
1: want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening
2: soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based